Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I am very excited to be talking to uh, Dr. David Sinclair. You're familiar with his book, uh, and actually you're likely familiar with some of the cool research that he's on. Uh, that he's written about in Lifespan, and we're going to get an update. But let me give you his background. He's a tenured professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, uh, co-director of, of the Paul F. Glenn Center for Biology of Aging Research at Harvard. Um, he's conjoint professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He's best known for his work on genes and small, small molecules that delay aging, in, including the sirtuins, NAD precursors, and other epigenetic modifiers. He serves as, as co-chief editor of the scientific journal Aging, and he has received many, many, many honors. Um, incidentally, David, you look, you look quite young. So this list of honors, well, including one of them being a leading scientist under the age of 45, I mean, it's just amazing what you've been able to achieve. Uh, what else? He was uh, voted, let me see, NIH Director's Pioneer Award, so he was given that. Time Magazine, one of the most top 100 influential people in the world and top 50 people in healthcare. So lots of cool accolades, lots of great research over at your lab. And I just look forward to diving in and, and talking about it today. Well, hey, Kara, it's great to be on. So we'll just start at the top and then we'll kind of drill down. What you fo you're focusing on aging, you know, maybe a snapshot as to why, I mean, it is ironic. You're one of the leading scientists under under 45, so you're really interested in it. And just, you know, the background on why, um, and then what what it is, you know, a definition of what aging is to you. Sure. Well, I'm now 50, so I don't qualify anymore. But I, oh, really? I used you still to be look at. Used to be okay. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, in, in videos now you can blur it slightly. I think that's the, the secret. Um, anyway, very kind introduction. Thank you. Um, it's, it's really great to meet you. Uh, so I've been interested in aging uh, since I was four years old when I realized nobody was really talking about it much. Um, and the consequences are horrific. Uh, you know, all the diseases that that we associate with old age, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, frailty, yeah. diabetes, the list goes on. Uh, people don't talk about it, um, but to me it's obvious that you don't get these diseases when you're a kid. And why is that? So I've been trying to figure that out. And if, we're, if I could give people the, the biology, the, the physiology of someone who's younger or maintain the youth, then we wouldn't get those diseases. Um, at least the prevalence would be much less and we could live much healthier. And as a consequence, we would live longer, of course. Um, the goal is not to live forever. That, that's, people misunderstand that. It's about to have a big impact on human health. And so aging, uh, I think, is, is defined incorrectly. Uh, we've been spending the last 200 or more years as scientists and doctors trying to research the, and, and, and fix and cure the end result of aging, those diseases. Right. I call it in my book, you'll remember, a whack-a-mole medicine. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think you and your listeners will appreciate that we do far less to prevent those diseases. Um, and one of the analogies I make is that aging, um, well, let's start with diseases. Diseases are what call, cause you to fall off the edge of the cliff. But why don't we talk about, why don't we research what drives us to the edge in the first place? Um, and I'm screaming, I've been screaming from, from the top of the mountain since I was from the ivory tower, you could say, for the last 25 years. Um, and in the end, I just said, okay, I, I have to write this book because it's just not getting through to right. um, you know, the, the people who make decisions. Uh, it seems to be working. So the definition of aging as it currently stands is that it's separate from disease. We we as you know as scientists and, and doctors say that a disease is something that causes a decline in the body's function often leading to death um, but it has to happen to less than half the population if it happens over time to 51 percent of people we call it aging and the problem with having that artificial separation between disease and aging is that we tend to think of disease as something we should throw billions of dollars to cure but aging, because it's more common, we say, oh, that's natural and therefore acceptable. Whereas I think it should be the opposite, that because it happens to almost everybody, it's, first of all, unacceptable and that we should be working more on it. Well, and I think that, you know, the whole whack-a-mole idea, um, I'm familiar with the future elderly model. I think Goldman wrote about that um, some years ago, about if we actually devoted energy more uh, intentionally towards aging, as you're doing in your work, we would reduce, yeah, we would stop playing the whack-a-mole as far as our science goes and our yeah, interventions. Jay, yeah, do, do you know about Jay? So Jay, Jay just wrote an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Uh, he's debating Jay, uh, Steve Olstead how long we're all going to live, but what Jay's famous for or at least I love him for is his way to say things that are uh, snarky, but, but humorous. And one of the things that he said, and I, I hope I don't screw it up, but he said something like the way we practice medicine is to find an illness, prescribe a medicine, 
push the patient out the door, repeat until failure. And I thought that's a beautiful way. Uh, you're, you're, you're an MD, so, uh, um, but, a, but a special one. But I do think that's how we, we are treated. It's, we'll give you a medicine, come back with another disease, we'll give you another medicine, come back with right. another disease. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. That's right. Of course. Yeah. And, and there has to be, you know, you have to meet a certain set of set of diagnostic criteria to actually be, you know, labeled and treated. That's right. Yeah. It, uh, yes. The idea of prevention of starting earlier, um, you know, is, is, is just gaining traction, obviously. And in, in my world, we're thinking about it all of the time. But e but you know what, even us in integrative slash functional medicine, you know, us advanced thinkers who are practicing whole person medicine, we're still siloing, you know, we're still making the diagnoses, which I mean, I think are important and useful, but you're backing up and considering aging, you know, as the underlying cause of the diseases. Well, it is. I'm, I'm not saying anything that isn't a fact. It's just that we've put it into a different box from, from really where it should be. L let me give an example of how frustrating this can be. Um, so let, let's say we had a medicine that could give people an extra five, even you know, 10 years of healthy life, delay cancer, delay frailty, delay Alzheimer's, and delay diabetes. Now, we think we have a medicine already that, a very safe medicine that can do that. This is metformin, of course, metformin being the leading drug for type 2 diabetes. Yeah. It's a little pill. It's cheap. Um, now, just grant me that it it does those things. There's a lot of evidence that it does, but it's hard to prove those things. But in tens of thousands of patients who've received this medicine, they are relatively protected from these diseases. Right now, you cannot be prescribed this medicine unless, like you said, over a threshold. Uh, you know, HbA1c levels have to go over whatever it is. I think it's five something. something. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, if you're 4.8, forget it. You know, most doctors will not give you a medicine that could prevent diabetes before you actually get it, which frustrates me tremendously. If I invented a medicine that delayed aging and gave everyone 50 years of extra life, imagine that, um, you couldn't be prescribed that medicine. That's right. That's right. So we are, we're, we, we're just, we exist in this disease care model versus healthcare model. Yeah. It's and often it's too late to, to do something. Well, why? That. So, so why is it so, uncomfortable I, why hasn't this par paradigm shift happened you know why isn't this in the collective you know m medical establish establishments epigenome <laughs> yeah. know, this is what we need to do i think you're in a better position to answer me I, I work at harvard medical school surrounded by doctors who look at me like i'm i have two heads um it's very hard to change the course of a, a conservative institution like like you know medical practice mm -hmm. um, even things that we discover in the lab now don't make it into the consciousness of your average md until 20 years yes at least yeah and yet it's so i have to say it's i've it, it's been an aha process for me a relatively recent one and the more i kind of sink into this idea of having a focus you know i could focus my energy on you know reversing the aging trajectory in my patients and have great outcome with all of the chronic diseases that we're facing all of the time 
who are the major players in aging? Like the, you know, the genes that we want to think about, um, you know, maybe the, the epigenetic influences, but, you know, what are you thinking about uh, biochemically as the major players that, that, that you want to impact on the aging process? Yeah. Well, the, about 20 years ago, I and oh, dozens of other labs uh, were finding genes that extend the li lifespan of simple organisms, yeast and nematode worms and flies and mice. Uh, and there were lots of genes flying around. And in fact, we scientists were at each other's throat conferences, basically, my gene is more important than your gene. That was the theme. Um, and it was, it was really vicious. There, were, there was a lot of um, angst, people crying. It was, it was horrible. Wow. Um, the field has settled down now. We're now into our second and third generation of the field. Um, and the new people, thank goodness, are calmer. Um, but I, I raised that because it was chaotic in the beginning. And what we settled on is that there are three probably more, but three main pathways um, that are part of a survival network that sense the environment, uh, both inside the body and out, and tell the body when it's time to hunker down, protect itself, survive, and when it's time to grow and reproduce and don't worry about keeping the body that healthy. Um, unfortunately, the world we're in, of course, keeps us in that state of being satisfied and the body doesn't worry that much about protecting itself. The three main pathways that respond to the environment, what we're eating, all those kind of things, exercising, are uh, the one that I work on is called the sirtuins. You mentioned them. These are seven genes in the body that respond to adversity. If you exercise, if you're hungry, if you're cold, they'll come on and, and protect the body in a variety of ways. The second group are feeding into AMPK or AMP kinase, it's called. And this revs up metabolism, makes more energy for the body. And that's the pathway that is revved up by metformin. And then the third pathway, which seems to be one of the, the most impactful in animals, but the most dangerous to play with, is called mTOR, little m, capital T-O-R. And rapamycin is a, uh, a drug that you'll be familiar with. It's and mm -hmm. People take it to stop transplant injections. But if you take a little bit of it, what you're doing is mimicking the body in a state of low amino acid intake. And that also induces the body to recycle old proteins and fight against aging. Um, all right, well, maybe I'm wondering where to go. I wanna, the, so I wanna talk about epigenetics and I wanna get over to the epigenetic clock, but do you wanna maybe it, just talk just maybe expand a little bit on these three genes and um well you mentioned ampk and metformin and then the sirtuins and just maybe some of the things that you're thinking about like, like the key sirtuins that you're interested in and and you know what they do mm -hmm. well let, let's start with the paradigm that we've come up with since uh, over the last 20 years at the top there are three levels going down at the top level, you've got the environment and what you eat and how you live. The second level are these longevity genes, AMPK, sirtuins, mTOR, and, and, and others, of course, hundreds of others that play into that network. And, if, and those genes are talking to each other. So if you tweak one, the others will kick into action as well. So the old idea of my genes more important than yours is, is a bunch of BS. And then the bottom part 
the, the third lowest, the lower layer are, are the causes of aging, the processes that go awry as we get older. Um, and there are about eight well-established, what we call hallmarks of aging. Um, we scientists, we're always scared to say causes because you can be wrong, but hallmarks is very safe. But essentially <laughs> these are the causes of, of aging at the, at the later stages, right? They're not the regulators, but these are the, the effects. So some of them are, if I list them, you'll recognize them. Arterial shortening, so the ends of chromosomes get shorter. Um, misfolded proteins, nutrient signaling gets defective. Uh, that's why metformin is helpful. Uh, we have senescent cells, the zombie cells that accumulate in the tissue, which mm -hmm. cause havoc and make other cells malfunction and cancerous. Uh, and we have the epigenome, which the sirtuins are also part of. And there are other things, stem cells and, and factors in the blood. So all of those things are known to go awry. And it's known that if you prevent or slow down one of those, you can actually have remarkable health benefits. The question is, is there something controlling all of those? Um, and I think I've, at least I've put forward a hypothesis that says that the epigenome is, is the master of all of those problems and have some evidence to back it up. Um, in terms of, you asked me about the sirtuins, what do they do? So there are seven. There are three of them are in the, in the government, uh, in the nucleus of the cell. The others are um, mostly found in the mitochondria. Uh, and there's one in the cytoplasm, which is number two. And they all do interesting things. I can't go through hundreds of their functions, but for example, SIRT1, which is the one that is most conserved across life, it's mostly nuclear and it controls gene expression. It also controls DNA repair, inflammation, and out in the mitochondria, it'll boost mitochondrial activity, reduce free radical production. So it's doing a lot of things. And the way it does that is that it either does it directly by deacetylating histone, packing proteins, but it also controls other proteins that do things like it deacetylates the inflammatory transcription factor NF-kappa B. It also deacetylates the cell cycle protein P53, which is well known for its role in cancer. And the list goes on, right? But um, you get the idea that these are master regulators of cellular health and survival. Um, and you can let them fade away in, uh, by not exercising and not eating the right foods and always being satisfied um, in terms of hunger, or you can activate them either through lifestyle and chemicals. So um, let's see, I guess I wanna, so, so entering into the anti-aging uh, process, engaging it, you would be thinking about influencing all of these. Um, but as you said, so all of these levels, so environment, the genes, and then the hallmark, the hallmarks of aging. So you, so you might sort of map out all of these guys, but then there all, there's much interrelation. Inter, well, there's major interrelationships. So I'm, I'm assuming an environment, if you're a smoker, obviously you're going to be damaging all of these, mm -hmm. um, these various, you know, genes and pathways. Exactly. Including um, the genome. Yeah, right, right. So 
let's see. Why don't, well, what, like, I'm just dying to get over to talking about, you know, methylation and 1011 translocases and some of the cool work you've done. So I want to just, let's, let's talk about that particular hallmark at epigenetic alterations. You, you did mention histone deacetylation and, 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 and search ones, but can you, I mean, I, I, I can you talk about, um, well, talk about the ice mouse study, and then recently you, well, actually in early, I guess July of 2019, you um, published another really interesting study, or it's nearing publication, looking at the changing epigenetic expression. And so the ice mouse study you wrote about in your book, and you accelerated aging aggressively in an epi, I think in a genetic slash epigenetic model, and then this more re this more recent paper that's that's going to be published soon, you actually reverse aging. So maybe talk about talk about epigenetics of aging and what you're you know and in, in, in those studies and and thinking about DNA methylation and demethylation. There's a huge there's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> a long uh, one. How long have we got? I know. I'm <laughs> sorry. I know I'm just throwing out too much, but I'm just so curious to hear what you have to say. All right. Well, so what we've got is a set of tools now that we can read the epigenome, um, not just in one dimension, which would be in relation to the ATCG code. Um, and of course, that's important. We can modify the C's, um, CPG islands, they're called. We can modify those with methyl methylation. That's um that's one-dimensional information, but now we've got these amazing tools, which uh, are only just being used widely. Some of them we just developed this week, actually. I was on. Oh my goodness! Talking to my lab this morning, where we can look at the epigenome in its true form, which is in three dimensions over time. And some of these technologies are called high C and high chip and attack seek. RNA-seq is an older one, but these are genome-wide analyses that any graduate student can do now, um, and not just on a tissue or on a, in a cell culture dish, but on single cells. Um, and what that's giving us is incredible, incredible insights into what's going on during aging um, and disease and in response to DNA damage. These are, I think, fundamental processes that we didn't really have a good handle on until uh, very recently. And the, there are a variety of ways of changing the structure of the epigenome. And by that, I mean the, the code, which can be on the DNA or on the histones themselves through methylation and in the case of histones, methylation and acetylation and, and, and a whole penelope of different modifications, which are relatively minor, but still I should mention them. They uh, complement what's happening in three dimensions, which is that there are proteins that loop out uh, the DNA or spool it up uh, tightly like a hose reel. And then those loops are interacting with other loops and they might not even be near each other in one dimension. They might be very close in three dimensions and we can now see that. Hmm. Um, and it's really quite amazing. Once you have these new technologies, it's fun to do the equivalent of going into a cave and switching on the light and you see all these diamonds. That's how I feel right now in, in the field. And what we're seeing, just to cut to the wow. chase, is when you disrupt cells, uh, in particular that the most potent disruption that we can do to a cell right now or an animal is to cut the chromosome 
and have the cell freak out trying to repair it. And we see that has not just very acute early major effects on the epigenome and its structure, but, but long-term permanent scarring of the epigenome so that those loops and bundles are permanently affected by having the cell go through this panic of trying to repair the chromosome. Wow, that's fascinating. And I mean, would you, so to, would you translate that into like DNA damage from like UV exposure or, you know, some of the environmental things that works that we're inundated with, you know, chronically bad diet? I mean, are we causing some of those same stressors? I think we are. Uh, the most potent insult is the double-stranded DNA break, or DNA double-strand break but probably other types of DNA damage are causing these as well. We've done most work on that, on the broken DNA, but there's no question in my mind that every time the cell has to readjust its epigenome to deal with a large shock, um, it has trouble resetting the system. Um, you know, th there's, there's the concept of course of hormesis where um, if you don't do lasting damage to the body or in this case, the epigenome, you, it's actually beneficial. You can turn on a stress response and reset, turn it on, reset. But there are certain types of damage um, that if they're overwhelming, let's say you, you go get a really bad sunburn, yeah, you'll get mutations, no question. That's what is believed and proven to cause skin cancer. But nobody I know, um, but I don't know everybody, but nobody I know except our lab is understanding what's happening at the epigenetic level, which seems to be just as important to get the cells into a certain state of metabolism and gene expression that also predisposes for diseases, including cancer. So can you just walk through the, what, what you showed in the um, ice mouse model? Yeah, so the ice mouse, this is, this is the, the decade long experiment that we've been doing uh, these all these papers that we'll talk about today um, on accelerating aging and reversing it are up online. You can go find them. They're up on BioArchive, B-I-O-R-X-I-V. We'll link to that on our show notes, folks. We'll we'll link to that and, and just any other pertinent uh, info from from Dr. Sinclair. Okay, keep going. Yep. And so the ISMI. So the ISMI stand for inducible changes to the epigenome. And in two thousand and eight, we published a paper. Uh, was 2009, we published a paper in Cell that said that we could see that chromatin regulators like CERT1, one of the sirtuins, uh, are part of a DNA damage response. So they move to the DNA break when it's created. And you don't have to be exposed to an X-ray or Chernobyl to get DNA breaks. They're happening all the time. Every cell gets a few every day, which means you know, 20 or more trillion in the body every day. So this is not minor and you can't prevent them. So this, these proteins, they move to repair the damage, but they don't always find their way back again. And we call this the relocalization of chromatin factors hypothesis of aging and presented a lot of evidence that that seemed to be true uh, in cells and in the mouse brain. And if we increase the amount of CERT1 protein in the, in the brain, we could actually prevent the, the changes in aging uh, caused by the epigen epigenetic change. So we've got 
early evidence, but the ice mice was a real swing for the fences. What we created was an actual animal that we could induce DNA breaks without causing mutations. Of course, if we had mutations, it would confound interpretation. We wouldn't know if it was DNA damage or it was actually the epigenome causing it. And then, um, so we induce that in those mice when they're young, about four or five months of age. And then we could ask the question, in the absence of mutations, but in the presence of epigenetic changes, what happens to those mice? And we got the result, the one in a million result that at least the hypothesis predicted, which is that those mice developed a very similar phenotype effect that looks like aging. Um, and not just at the gross level. I mean, you look at the mice, they look old, they've got a bent spine, they've got gray hair, they don't see well. But if you look at the physiological parameters and the histological parameters, and even the molecular changes in terms of gene expression and these chromatin changes, epigenetic changes, it looks like aging, um, which is the first time I believe that aging has been mimicked in a mouse to this extent. Um, but there's one last thing that's really important because it, only yeah. until recently could we unambiguously say these mice are old. And that's the DNA methylation clock or the Horvath clock. Mm -hmm. And so we did that test on these mice and they didn't just look 50% older than their brothers and sisters. They were literally 50% older. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, wow. Okay. So, okay. So, so it just seems that, yeah, at every, at every turn you induced, it's so you induced aging and you would say that aging is an epigenetic phenomenon. Well, I'm inclined to believe that that hypothesis is true. Speaking as a scientist. I know, that's great. Isn't There's that layers true? of qualification in that. <laughs> well, you know, you have to remember nothing's ever yeah. proven. I can't sure. prove the sun will come up tomorrow even. Right. But yeah, I mean, that, that result um, was, you know, one in a million. And, you know, I'm not that lucky. That's Things just don't happen uh, to me. They're one in a million. So I think more likely the hypothesis is valid. Well, I want to, so I know you've got this other study I want to talk about where you actually do the reverse and you, you turn back, you, you turn back the hands of times pretty remarkably, but in this ice model, so you make these mice old, have you introduced some of the interventions that you talk about to them? I mean, have you been able to reverse age in these old mice? Have you, have you looked at that? Well, we haven't, um, partly because we still are struggling, not struggling, but we're still working hard to publish these papers. Um, after that, I can start doing the next stage, which is what you're suggesting. Uh, we did give them some, we, we are giving some NMN, which is the mm -hmm. so an activator that we work on in part. Um, it's not done yet. The, the mice do seem to have less frailty and that's true for regular old mice as well. But, you know, due to lack of time and funds, we haven't been able to do that experiment. It, these are really hard experiments in my defense. Um, yeah. These mice have to be bred and then induced, and then you have to wait another 10 months. So just getting the experiment done is two to three year process uh, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, which basically is, is more than a single grant from the government. So, you know, I can't do so, so much in parallel that I'd like to be doing, um, but I'm, I'm very keen to apply 
the technologies we have now, particularly the really new ones that do seem to really be able to not just slow aging, but reverse it. All right, I want to talk about those in a second. I just want to let folks know that NMN is nicotinamide uh, mononucleotide, and that's a cofactor, actually. I think NAD is the cofactor. Is that correct for the for the sirtuin? Uh, yep. So sirtuins use NAD as officially a co-substrate, which means they, they rip NAD apart and attach an acetyl from the histone or the target protein. Um, but yeah, if you don't have NAD, sirtuins won't work, but neither will we. And so, yeah, so, you, so the, N, the NMN is something that you're taking that you think is, is beneficial for you that we can take. I think a lot of folks probably listening to this podcast are taking some form of, of um, maybe nicotinamide riboside or um, NMN. Uh, anyway, for sirtuin support. Okay, so, so initial, initial findings in this group of mice, it suggests that NMN might be helpful for them. That's pretty neat. I, it's interesting if if we were to light upon the benefit of aging, of anti-aging research, you'd you'd ha certainly have a lot of funds. I mean, you could divert some of the, you know, millions and millions and millions, or perhaps billions of dollars going into all of the other chronic disease research that we're engaging in our siloed. Um, yeah. Halls. Yeah, it's risky. I did write in my book the comparison of of um, investment and return, so that that's detailed. But I don't want to be painted with a brush that basically says, "Oh, David thinks we shouldn't do Alzheimer's research." That's not true. I think any research is better than none. But I yes. think in terms of bang for the buck, we've been very well. We've as a, as a group of medical researchers, we haven't been very successful in treating Alzheimer's. Right, right. Um, and then uh, Leonard Hayflick, who's a legend in the field of aging, he discovered cellular senescence. Uh, it's actually cell senescence is called the Hayflick limit of cell reproduction. Mm -hmm. So what he said was um, curing Alzheimer's will tell you nothing about aging. Uh, it may allow you to extend lifespan by maybe 14 days, is his quote. Wow. Um, and meanwhile... Uh, I don't know exactly the numbers. I haven't looked recently, but it's orders of magnitude more in Alzheimer's versus the biology of aging. Now, there's because there's so much money in in Alzheimer's. A lot of people in my field are trying to put the word Alzheimer's into their grants because uh -huh. it's the best way to get funding. But it it typically doesn't go to understanding why Alzheimer's uh, occurs in older people. And put it this way, and, and we're, we're doing this experiment right now. If we can take a mouse and one day maybe a, a, a human that has Alzheimer's and make their brain young again, would they have Alzheimer's? I mean, you would, I, I, would, I would venture now. Right. I would agree. <laughs> so. we, will, we will know in the next year or so. Yeah. And so it could really be a, yeah. Anyway. That's uh, well. So let's just let's start talking about it. So you've got the ice model. You you you've made mice age, and it's an epigen. It seems to be an epigenetic phenomenon, and therefore, if you begin to turn the clock back via um, altering the epigenome. I, actually, let me ask you this: in the ice model, when you look at the epigenetic changes, are there there are, you would say they're DNA 
methylation and demethylation and then histone acetylation are that those are the lines or is methylation the lion's share i mean what are you what are you seeing um i guess if you're looking if you're using horvath's clock you're looking at methylation we are so we're looking at a lot and if if you go to the papers that we put up online you'll see there's a lot of data on this it just gets more complicated the more you you spend on it but we do see changes in methylation, not globally, just at these particular clock sites, which is, which is important because it means yeah. the cell is actively controlling which, which of these sites is important to, or which drives aging and which is important to reverse. It's not just that you can wipe clean uh, like you would brush your teeth uh, free of methylation. It's much more controlled yeah. than that, which is very exciting actually, if it's a yeah. conserved process. Um, right. Then, yeah, but, but we also see many changes besides that. We see histone acetylation, methylation changes at, across the whole genome at particular genes. Um, one set of genes that jumped out that's interesting uh, is the developmental control genes. Uh, for example, the Hox locus, HOX, these genes control in embryon, embryogenesis where your head and your tail are. Hmm. Um, and we see those get dysregulated during aging, hmm. uh, which is something people haven't thought about. But I, hmm. more and more, I think aging is the dysregulation of embryogenesis late in life and cells starting to lose their identity. That's so interesting. Um, so just let's talk about actually, well, let me ask you this, and then we're going to talk about reversing aging and some of your some of the other research that you've done. So do you think that Horvath, the, that Horvath's clock, and uh, there's actually a few clocks now, but the, you know, his main one, um, those changes aren't just surrogate markers of aging, they actually drive aging. We think so. Uh, so when I cheekily wrote in the book, uh, if you can give something to those ice mice, you know, you could take it away. Yeah, but, we, but really, it, it's a philosophy that first we want to understand why aging happens. I think we have some idea. And now, using that knowledge, we can target um, therapies. And what we've done in general is to figure out where the backup copy of the epigenome is, uh, or at least how to access it and reset the cell. Um, and that required the removal of the DNA methylation sites at these particular genes or regions of the genome. And you mentioned um, the TET genes. These are you know, used during embryogenesis, important for set, setting the cell type. If you're a nerve cell, you have to stay a nerve cell. You don't want to be, be turning into a liver cell the next day. Right. Um, but we know that if we don't have those TET genes or a gene that's, that works downstream of them to finally remove the methyl group, it's called TDG, uh, without those genes, the reprogramming and the age reversal doesn't happen. It is really complex. And I can imagine now that you've gone into, you've turned the light on in the cave. <laughs> it's just added that much more complexity. Oh my gosh, it's extraordinary. Oh, but yeah, but it's, I mean, how exciting is it to just walk around and pick, pick diamonds off the wall? It's amazing. Uh, it's very, it's really cool. Um, and I want to talk about what we're going to be doing, what we need to be thinking about as humans. But now let's talk about, so you've made the mice old. 
NMN seems to be helpful to, for them. But then you also have this other remarkable study where you've, you're regenerating nerve cells, you know, which is a hallmark of aging, um, optic nerve cells, I think, and, um, and, and, and using Yamanaka factors. And so, that, so you're turning back the hands of time by altering epigenetic expression. Can, can you talk about that? Right. So we spent many years, well, I should say my graduate student, um, Yuan Chang Lu, was ready to quit because he was trying all sorts of ways to re reset the epigenome of old cells. And he kept getting cancer cells. He kept getting dead cells. Um, and he actually came into my office and he said, I, I can't do this. I have to quit. Um, and I said, well, you know, just try something new. And what he decided to do was to try a, a combination of three of the Yamanaka transcription factors, which are used these days to make stem cells out of um, regular cells, adult cells. Uh, and he did that and he found that aging could go backwards in cell culture. Uh, and he was just using fibroblast skin cells. He didn't use neurons at that point. But then he did something that was extremely brave. He said, what if we just inject these three genes into the eye of a mouse and see what happens? You know, most people don't, don't jump from basically skin cells to the eye that he did. Yeah, why did he do that? What prompted that? Uh, well, he was, he's fascinated by the eye anyway. His family is a group of eye experts. His father has a company that is making stem cell replacements for the eye. Um, and so he was thinking that already. Um, but in revisionist history, um, it's partially true that we thought that the early, very young central nervous system, including the, the optic nerve, can regenerate. But as you become older, it, it doesn't anymore. And we thought, well, if we push those cells back to an early state, maybe they would repair themselves or grow back. And so that was the idea. The, the third reason, which really is true, 100%, is that we, we knew that there were drugs about to be approved for treating eye disorders with gene therapy. And we're both very interested in making translational discoveries, meaning can we help patients? Mm -hmm. And if it worked in the eye of a mouse, we could go much quicker in treating a human eye. And so that was the idea. And so he went for it and he did one experiment first where he damaged the back of the eye with a pair of tweezers. Um, and we had collaborators, Zhigang uh, He's lab at Children's Hospital at, in Boston were the experts. This is very difficult stuff. Uh, but what we found was after the crush, we could turn on the three Yamanaka factors and we found that the nerves grew back and survived much better like they were young again, which was the first indication that we might be onto something. It's amazing. So you didn't, and you actually turned them on, the endogenous Yamanaka factors? No, we, we don't, don't have the technology to do that yet, though. That's what this morning's lab meeting was about. Seriously? Wow. Yeah, I mean, we, we won't eventually just take a pill to do this. Um, yes. And we're getting there. Or like eat an apple or maybe take a couple grams of vitamin C. <laughs> <laughs> you know, vitamin C is one of the inducers of the TETs. You maybe you know yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, so we're we're on to it. 
But in, <laughs> we we only have primitive technology where we have to use um, AAV, ad adeno-associated viruses, to turn them on. And in those viruses, we fit the three genes and we put them under the control of the antibiotic doxycycline. So we could now feed those mice doxycycline, on come the genes, and then we could turn that off three, four weeks later. The reason we wanted to turn them off is, is for safety reasons. Um, yeah. When we go into people, which we hope is less than two years from now, wow. we'll have a nice safety switch. So, okay, so, so for folks who are like, who are just scratching their heads, I, so these Yamanaka factors, you know, I'm not, I don't know a lot about them, except that, as you said in the beginning, you can take a, full, a fully formed special, specialized adult cell and, and just bring it all the way back to pluripotent status, correct? Yeah. And okay. so then if you were to do that, like if you had, you know, you're, he's, he's dealing with regenerating an optic nerve, if you don't want to bring that all the way back to stem cell status, you want it to stop as a nice new fresh nerve cell and regenerating vision. Mm -hmm. And that's your hard, that's like, that's your, that, that's why you're stopping the, the journey kind of midway. But, well, that, that was the trick is that uh, how could we do this without turning the eye into a giant stem cell pool or a tumor? And so it's, right. it's called partial reprogramming. We, we tell the cell, go back to being young, but stop don't go any further. And we managed to do that by leaving out some of the other Yamanaka factors like uh, CMIC, which is an oncogene. And it seems like we've hit upon the, the correct three gene combo that's very safe. We've tested this in mice for over a year in the eye and in the whole body. Um, but it, it does take cells back to a very young state. Well, if you've tested it in the whole body, have you, you've, you've taken old mice and made them young? Would you say? Uh, well, no, the, we did it for safety reasons. So we didn't analyze those mice extensively. We opened them up, so to speak, and, uh, and had a look at the number of tumors. We didn't let them get really old, unfortunately, which is where, what I would have liked to have done. But the reviewers of our paper um, forced us to kill those mice. Um, so we're going to have to repeat the experiment. But it's not a perfect experiment because it's not easy to deliver AAVs to the whole body evenly. They go to the liver and pile up there. Um, what we're working on now are new generations of AAVs that we can get more even distribution across the body. Hmm. And that'll be a, a better experiment. The so adenoviruses. Yeah, the adenoviruses. Because it, it's still evolving technology. That's so interesting. And will that be the technology that's used in humans? Uh, well, the, the AAV2 uh, works fine for the mouse eye and it will work, should work fine for the human eye. It's already uh, FDA approved for that. That's really interesting. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So let's just, I'm going to just ground, ground us in what we can do today. What can, what can we do today to um, slow down our epigenetic changes to slow down the the clock. Those methylation sites that Horvath has identified, and you know, there's you started our conversation by these three areas. Of course, our environmental inputs, 
the longevity genes, and then the seven hallmarks with epigenetic alterations, I think you'd probably put at the top of your list. Um, so what do we, what can we do now safely to, you know, slow everything down as we wait for adenovirus delivery? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so the, the NMN, which is the NAD precursor, we don't know if that does anything in humans yet, for, formally speaking. It's mostly been in, in mice. I'm, I'm running clinical, helping to run clinical trials right now with NAD boosters, including NMN, but the results are still early. They're phase one results. So safety looks good. Efficacy, I'll have to tell you in a, about a year from now. Uh, okay. Yep. So, but uh, I, I take NMN because it's safe, apparently. Um, and if, if we wait 10 years for proof, uh, if there is such thing, it's going to be too late for a lot of people, um, especially my father, who uh, is 80 at this point. So he's not taking any, uh, he is taking some risks, but very small risk. So there's NMN. The other thing that I take is resveratrol. So resveratrol from red wine is the old story. It was controversial back and forth, but now we've proven that it, or at least shown pretty convincingly that it activates the SIRT1 enzyme directly, as we had said, um, and that if you give it to mice and to people, it has health benefits, including lowering of cholesterol and um, blood glucose levels. What and kind of dosage and what form? Uh, I take a gram a day. I take it in powder form. Some of the early trials failed, I think, because it, um, it doesn't get absorbed if you just pop it as a dry powder in a capsule. And I know that as a fact. This isn't just me speculating. Um, so I mix it with some yogurt, a couple of spoons of yogurt in the morning so that it's uh, dissolved. It's, it's like trying to eat brick dust, <laughs> the most soluble drug. Oh, the problem is, it's not a drug, it's a, obviously a, a plant supplement. The problem with resveratrol is that when it comes straight out of the plant, it's attached to sugars and it's nice and soluble, but the processing of it uh, means you, you purify the plain molecule, which isn't soluble. So that's the point. I take a gram every morning. And, and then you take NM, NMN with that. Yeah, together. NMN is soluble, so you don't need food. We don't think, but um, yeah, resveratrol is a real trouble, troublesome molecule. Um, we, we've shown other molecules activate sort one, going back to 2003 actually. Uh, Crocetin, um, which you can get, apples and orange, onions, I think. Um, beet, uh, what is it? Physetin is another activator. I, I just take mainly resveratrol because I don't want to take too many things at once. But I, I should say that I'm monitoring myself carefully to see if things get better or worse. Ah, uh, right. You talked about that. Yeah. What are you, how are you monitoring? Uh, well, I do... Uh, I have the, the Apple Watch. I have the, the Aura Ring, O-U-R-A. Mm -hmm. And I also do blood tests through a company that I have to disclose I'm involved with and have a small investment in. It's called Inside Tracker. Okay. And they can come to your house or you can go to Quest or LabCorp and get a blood test. And they measure, I think, more than 35 markers now. The usual ones, um, you know, CRP, glucose, testosterone, vitamin D, um, the usual, but also some extras that are interesting. But what makes them special is, um, first of all, you can look at the graphs over time. 
but really their secret source is that they have hundreds of thousands of data points now and they've mined PubMed and they can tell you, first of all, what is optimal for you according to the literature and also how to get into the optimal zone by changing what you eat and how you exercise. I love it. Okay, so we'll link to that on the show notes page, folks. It just sounds, it sounds really, um, really cool, David. So resveratrol, you're doing a gram of NMN. Product quality for resveratrol, we, you, you can name brands. It's fine. Well, actually, I can't. Um, oh, okay. No, I mean, I'm, I don't do that for a number of reasons. One is I've never tested brands. Okay, okay, okay. That's fair enough. Okay. Good. Yeah. The, the other thing I, I definitely want to mention is um, I don't. Um, so what happens if, if I mention a company, even if it's neutral, is that my base, my quote will be up on their website. So I have to be really careful. And you can imagine how Harvard Medical School feels about that. Yeah, I, you know, I appreciate that. I, I do. I appreciate that. But we're this particular podcast isn't um, CME or anything like that. So yeah, that, I'm absolutely happy to respect that. Um, any, any other interventions that you're doing that you think are important for people to be adopting now? Uh, lots. Um, there's a whole list on page 304. Um, okay. Yep. And we'll link to, we'll link to the book. So yeah, if you don't already have it, we'll, we'll, we'll link to, I guess, I don't know, Amazon or something. Yeah. And, and then, new developments that I see I put out in a, in a newsletter that's also on the, the book's website. Um, and so I'm always learning about how to optimize exercise and diet based on the scientific literature, um, mostly, and clinical trials, importantly. Good. Um, yeah. I mean, I can go through some of them if you like. Well, you know what? Your website is lovely and it's accessible and you can sign up for the newsletter. And I, so I don't know. I mean, unless there, I, I, we're, we're really, we need to kind of bring this home. We could, I could pick your brain all day, but we do need to wrap up. So maybe just some final thoughts be that um, you've already talked about some, you gave us some insight into where we're heading, but you know, if there's something that he, we can engage in now, just cut, give me some of your, thoughts either on interventions for us to adopt or you know where science is going right uh well i'm increasingly interested in alpha ketoglutarate which is a substrate for the interesting um, and there's there's some preliminary evidence in mice that it extends their lifespan uh, this is brian kennedy's work um who's at um over in singapore uh, an old colleague of mine so that's interesting. Um, Have you actually started taking alpha ketoglutarate? A little bit, a little bit. Um, it's I, I need to do it more rigorously and see what happens. Um, right now, my life's like everybody's a little bit out of control, so right. I'll, I'll do it more rigorously later. But yeah, I'm, I mean, it tastes fine. It's nice and acidic. It's like eating citric acid. It's been in our world in integrative medicine, we've been using alpha ketoglutarate forever because it's a Krebs cycle intermediate. Like that's right. how we've sort of thought about it. And in, you know, one, in one company in particular would always put a little bit of AKG in a amino acid supplement, you know, for that reason. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it may have that double benefit. We'll see. Um, I'm also really interested in oleic acid. Yep. And uh, O L E I C, mm -hmm. and uh, so it's a 
component of olive oil and yeah. avocados and nuts, right? Everyone knows that. Yep. But, but it may be the reason why those foods are so healthy. And then what's happening at the cellular level uh, was shown in a recent paper a few months ago. Um, Doug um, Maschinek, I might be screwing the name up, but um, he did a brilliant study with his lab and found that the way resveratrol activates CERT1 directly by changing how it moves in time and space uh, is the same way that oleic acid interacts with the enzyme. So if he's right, what it means is that, first of all, when we eat these foods, we're it's basically like drinking red wine. You get a, an activation boost like resveratrol. But also what's important is that oleic acid is a byproduct of fasting. When we, when we fast, or should I say fast, now I'm American, but <laughs> fasting will generate oleic acid right, out of your white adipose tissue. And that may be one of the reasons why being hungry is so good for you. Huh. Oh, and here's the cool thing. We can, we can test that. We have a mouse that, um, well, at least the mutation we published in science uh, about 2013, we've now made a mouse that has the mutation that blocks resveratrol's ability to activate. And we haven't published this yet, but I'll tell you uh, that, that those mice don't live longer when you give them resveratrol um, in combination with a high-fat Western diet, which basically nails the hypothesis that resveratrol works through CERT1 activation. Um, so, you know, that's nice to, to do because uh, scientists at Pfizer gave me hell for a decade. The other thing about it is that we can now test whether oleic acid gives health benefits to those mutant mice. And if it doesn't, then I think Doug's hypothesis could be true. Isn't that fascinating? And have you started that yet? Uh, have we? I think we were about to before uh, COVID came by but we're getting there. We, we're going to start with cells from the mice, which is much easier. Very exciting stuff. I mean, these are some old school. It's really, it's, a, it's you know, it's, always, it's nice to hear about oleic acid. Of course, we're all eating as many avocados as we can and certainly using loads of olive oil, but it's just, it's really nice to revisit it or alpha ketoglutarate and see, you know, that it's, it's involved in these really key age reversing um important you know mechanisms beyond just sort of cell fluidity which is what we thought about was you know monounsaturated fatty acids like there's just way more uh levels to it that you guys are teasing out in in very interesting ways well it has been just a pleasure to be able to talk to you today and i thank you so much for your time and all of your you know just your willingness to your generosity with sharing all the things that are going on over at your lab good work extraordinary work thank you oh thanks cara um well you keep up your good work too thanks thank you all right so we'll continue this hopefully if you allow me pick your brain again sometime in the future i would love to have you on again sounds good and that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day.
Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.